everything went completely black. You could not see your hand in front of your face. There was no visibility at all because the dust just blocked everything out. We were literally suffocating. When you look at how many different ways I was almost killed that day, you know, I know in my head, I was just like, get as much done as you can before you're dead. The 20th anniversary of 9-11 seemed like the right time to sit down with today's guest. While this podcast series was born out of conversations with strangers, Rob Weisberg is actually someone I've known since elementary school. I knew he worked right near the Twin Towers on 9-11, and I was convinced he was killed each time a tower came down. There are so many stories from 9-11, and I have to be honest, digging into the day and reliving it through conversation and archival clips brought me right back there. In fact, in speaking to others recently about 9-11, I learned I wasn't alone in this feeling I have where part of me is still stuck there. On my balcony across the river in New Jersey with a once perfect view of the Manhattan skyline. It was a day that changed so many people. Obviously the unprecedented loss of life, but the emotional trauma that everyone who witnessed it all around the world deals with to this day. Not to mention the lingering health issues suffered by those who gave their all to help both on 9-11 and the months that followed. Rob's story is similar. He was there, under the towers, as they fell, twice. We'll hear his first-hand experiences from the day in part one, and the lingering effects both emotionally and physically in part two. Everyone has this story to tell. This is Rob's. I'm Frank Verderosa, and these are the Everyday Odysseys. With ID, and we had a phone call that came down to us saying that they had a possible hijack out of Boston. Okay. And uh, I just flipped around, and we were just, we, we always wanted the news. And a 737 hit the World Trade Center. We just had a, a plane crash the upper floor of the World Trade Center, crash 9-11, Monday, I stayed home because I wasn't feeling well. So here it was Tuesday, and I was like, I can't miss two days of work in a row. I got too much going on. So I was like, I got to make it in today. Rob was prepared to start his day as a corporate accountant. A train ride in from Long Island, a subway ride downtown, an elevator ride up to his office across from what is now Ground Zero. His day was about to change before he even made it out of the subway. The first plane hit, and the shockwave blew all these people down the stairs before I got to the stairs. So you heard the explosion, you felt the ground shake. And remember, you know, the plane hit how many stories up? And so we're below ground, and the ground shook. People come flying down the stairs from the shockwave. And it's not just one or two people. It's just, you know, a subway car, a subway train with multiple cars had let out. So you're talking about a packed area. My initial thought was, oh, this must be a car bomb. Rob also happens to be a volunteer firefighter on Long Island with a lot of training and many years under his belt. 
He immediately tried to size up the situation as he braced himself for what was to come once he got out of the subway. He had to very quickly shift mental gears from accountant to emergency responder. I get to the street level and I look up and the glass is still coming down and the papers are coming down. The fire is roaring 80 stories up. With your training, you're always thinking size up. What happens? What would you do if, right? And you look at the trade center and it was, it was just such a impressive set of buildings. And it's hard to not in your head say, what would a pre-plan look like for a structure or two structures like this? So in your head, you know, you, you think, you know, well, we could do this, we could do that, how, but how many guys would you need, you know? And my initial response was, oh crap, and they don't have enough guys. So I went, I went to my office and they all knew my background. And I said, listen, um, I'm here, but I need to get across the street because then they don't have enough guys. And if I'll see if they can use me, if not, I'll come back. And they were very supportive. They said, yeah, absolutely. You do what you got to do. And, uh, we'll, we'll catch up later. So I got to the firehouse on Liberty street, which was the Southern street of the, the trade center complex. And had you, had you hung out with this, the folks at this firehouse before, like given your background? No, no, I'm surprised. No, this was, yeah, I know. Right. You would think the reality is, you know, with everything that I have going on on Long Island, my, my mentality was go into the city, do what I got to do and get home because I got to get to my firehouse. I got to, you know, I got my family here. I got things to take care of and Long Island. A lot of people don't realize it's pretty much a hundred percent volunteer. So. I don't get paid for that. It is all, you know, hey, what can I do to help my neighbor mentality? And to back up even further, you know, um, scouting was a big part, has and is still a big part of my life. So community service is very important to me. So I was like, listen, I'm in good shape. I like that kind of atmosphere. I like doing that kind of work. This is a perfect match. So I was a firefighter at that point for seven years when all this happened. Speaking of being in good shape, in the July before 9-11, Rob did a 350-mile bike ride from New York to Boston to fundraise for AIDS research. He trained for about a year with his firefighter friend, Tom Kelly, who had done this sort of thing before. It was exhausting. Most of the ride was in 95-degree heat. He found himself severely dehydrated and requiring medical attention. In fact, they took him out of the ride for treatment and then allowed him to rejoin his group to cross the finish line, where he got to celebrate with Tom. We finished the ride in Boston, and I remember hanging out in a pub with him before they had the official wrap-up of the ride. And someone took our picture together, and uh, I was like thrilled to have it because we, you know, we become good friends. And uh, yeah, he got killed. He got killed that day. So, uh, you know, I remember going to his uh, memorial service and, you know, they have like a little pamphlet, you know, with uh, his photo and, you know, everything. And to this day, it's still in my uniform hat, you know, because, you know, you go to these services in, in your dress uniforms. And whenever I go to a formal whatever, 
you know, he's with me at those, uh, at those events. The bike ride wasn't the only exhausting part of Rob's summer before 9-11. Shortly after that, he was involved in a trench rescue and a body recovery mission. It's the kind of thing he trains for. At my fire department, I was part of a uh, technical rescue team where we were specially trained in uh, trench rescue, building collapse, uh, confined space rescue, things like that. So it's almost like if you had a problem, you called the fire department. If the fire department had a problem, you called us. We had instructors coming in from Louisiana to train us. We went to Pennsylvania to train. Okay, it, it, this was above and beyond what the basic requirements were to, to serve your neighbor, okay? And again, this is all volunteer because this, these are the things that we enjoy doing. And what a lot of people don't know is, you know, September 11th was roughly a week after Labor Day, right? And I spent my Labor Day at a body recovery doing basically, you know, a trench rescue for, uh, for a situation and, uh, collapse cesspool, right? Yeah, exactly. Rob goes on to describe that day, the family watching from their house as the fire department tries to find their loved one in the ground. He said it was mentally exhausting and physically draining being responsible for the safety of his team, but also being respectful of the family watching on. And this is in his downtime. And then, it's time to go back to work. Look about six federal floors are taken out. It says a lot about Rob that after all that exhaustion, that on 9-11 when he goes to work, he easily could have just turned around and gone back home. He drops his bags and heads over to the firehouse. When I got to the firehouse, the guys in that house were out at another call at the time. They were at a gas leak. The captain was in quarters, so when I saw him, I introduced myself. I identified myself as a firefighter. I showed him my badge. And... Uh, I said, listen, if you can use me, great. But, you know, I know I'm an unknown to him. So I said, if, if, if not, fine, I'll, I'll get out of your way. And I was, I'd go back to work. So he was like, no, no, you're, you're all I got. So you're in charge of triage. So I ended up setting up one of the first medical areas for downtown. So we already had people in the firehouse that either were walking wounded or people that carried other people in. So I was like, you know, all right, I got my hands full already yeah. with what's going on. And I said, all right, great. What I asked, you know, what supplies are available? And he pointed to a cab, the captain pointed to a cabinet and said, we're, we're not really, we don't really do EMS work. You know, we don't do ambulance type work. So we have a cabinet with some gloves and some band-aids kind of thing but supplies are pretty limited. So I said, all right, where are the, uh, you know, where's the bunk room? He told me he was like upstairs. So I went to the second floor and I see a gym. 
I go up to the next floor and that's where the bunk room is. And I see uh, sheets, blankets, pillows and all that. Right. So I start grabbing whatever I can because I'm like, I got to lay these people down in the truck room. As Robert said, there were a lot of ways he could have died on 9-11. He just continued to get lucky. And here's a story based on a choice he made that saved his life and others just by chance. That firehouse had two bays, you know, one for an engine, one for a truck. All right, so two, two, two pieces of equipment could be parked in, in the firehouse. And uh, the ambulance shows up and I'm like, all right, let's put it in this. I'll put it in this one versus that one, you know, just by chance, right? Right. So the first collapse happens and uh, one of the jet engines came into the firehouse and and crushed the ambulance. So had I instructed the ambulance to go into the other bay. You would have been standing uh, where that engine came in. Yeah, I was, and I was pretty much not even 15 feet away from the ambulance, you know? So, I mean, uh, <laughs> the ambulance, you know, is designed to save people's lives. Right. But this was a totally different way of <laughs> yeah. using it yeah. because, uh, again, that jet engine would have been a bowling ball coming through the firehouse. Literally. I mean, as it was, we did have one civilian get killed in the firehouse. Oh man. Um, you know, so, uh, it would have been a lot worse. I mean, we had over 40 people in the firehouse, you know, looking for treatment or we also had people that came by the firehouse just because they didn't know where else to go. Yeah. You know, they were like, Hey, um, can we stay here with you? Cause it seems like a safe place. Right. So I was, I was just like, yeah, sure. Um, in the back of the firehouse, there's a kitchen area with the TV. Go on, you guys go in there and, and sit around the tables and, I figured, you know, it was a safe place. They were out of my way, you know, and I don't mean that in a, in a bad way, right? but I, ju I just needed to keep the front clear. So more space was available for the wounded that were coming into the firehouse. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, again, that, that was another op, you know, I say opportunity to get killed, you know, on top of that, we weren't far at all from the towers, like I said, just across the street. So they estimated that the wind where we were was about 140 miles an hour. I remember hearing that as the tower came down. Right. So, and I, and I tell people and people are like, what are you talking about? I say, well, wave your hand. Do you feel that breeze? And they're like, yeah, I go now take a 110 story building and wave it around. It's a bigger breeze. Yeah. And that bigger breeze is about 140 miles an hour. Okay. And I, I honestly, I don't doubt it because I know I got blown off my feet and I hit a cinder block wall towards the back of the firehouse. Uh, I was fortunate. I only went about six feet and hit the wall pretty hard. But uh, one of the EMTs, uh, 
he hit the same wall, but he went about 25 feet. My God. <laughs> okay. He ended up with a concussion and uh, a broken ankle. There was that, but the thing that came with it was, if you remember seeing like all the videos and, and you were watching it, you know, from, uh, from, from your balcony, that dust cloud. Yeah. Okay. And a couple things happened. One was everything went completely black. You could not see your hand in front of your face. Okay. There was no visibility at all because the dust just blocked everything out. I mean, it was just black. The other thing was we were breathing that in. So, uh, you know, we didn't have masks on. Um, nobody expected the towers to come down, right? Yeah. So um, the, all that dust and grit, I mean, it was in my eyes. It was down my throat. And remember, you know, inside your mouth is moist, right? So it just caked in side your mouth Ugh. and down your throat. Okay. Um, we were literally suffocating. Okay. I remember trying to breathe. You couldn't breathe. Trying to shout out to the guys. You couldn't scream because you couldn't breathe. And all you could do is dry heave because you're trying to get all this stuff in that's in your body, out of your body. Right. And, uh, I mean, this one, I, I wish I could have thrown up because it would have helped flush some of this stuff out, but it was yeah. just, you know, it was just dry. Um, but yeah, like I said, we were literally suffocating and I don't know if you ever had a situation where you just couldn't catch your breath. Yep. It's, it's an unsettling feeling, but when this is not just, you can't catch your breath, this is, you cannot get oxygen and you, 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 you realize you're suffocating. It's another lousy feeling because again, that's another opportunity to die. Yeah. And you're like, when am I going to be able to breathe again? And, uh, and you know, you remember back at, back at your apartment when I went to take my wallet out of my jeans and all the grit that was inside my wallet that was inside my jeans pocket how hard did we get hit with that blast? Right. That's, that that's what really made... struck me because of course <laughs> you know? us being who we are, and we'll talk more about it, you survive <laughs> two towers coming down. You, you make your way across to where I live. We order mm -hmm. dinner. And when you open your wallet through your jeans in the folds of your wallet in the cash right. was shrapnel and debris that's right. how intense that was. Yeah. I'll never that's how, forget that. And that's from the wind. Yeah. You know, and, uh, there was that. And like I said, my clothes were covered if you remember. Yeah. So if, and so, you know, just to keep your place clean, you know, we put, you know, we put down that black sheet on your couch for me to sit down. Right. And I got up for a minute and you could see my whole body image from yeah. the dust. There was a dust, the, a dust imprint. <laughs> yeah. You yeah, know, that was and it was just like spooky. It was like, you know, it, that's exactly where you were sitting. And we can take, here's your back, here are your legs, yeah. you know. Yeah, well, you were pretty, <laughs> pretty much covered. Yeah, yeah. Rob and almost everybody in that firehouse got pretty lucky. We'll talk about their escape in a minute. But the firehouse wasn't without its victims. 
when the city started doing the recall and they were sending guys across the street to uh, to go into one of the towers to start doing a search. You know, at this point, we already had the guys uh, in the ambulance come over from Brooklyn. And uh, I said to the captain, I said, hey, uh, listen, we got those guys here now. You know, I could transfer to over everything that I was doing to them. And why don't you put me with the search team? Because that's really where I'm specialized in my training. And uh, he said, no, no, you got it. Just keep going with it. You got it all under control. So keep doing what you're doing. And I said, okay, no problem. And I remember watching those eight guys go across the street and thinking, damn it, man, I, I wish I was with them. And, uh, you know, just a few minutes later, you hear that first collapse taking place. And it's like, you know, they didn't make it. You know, none of them made it. And here it is. I was like, wow, I was wishing to be with them. And I was disappointed and a little upset, I guess, because that was really where I thought I could do more good. And, uh, you know, it just, they didn't, they didn't come back. With the tower down, the fire department was no longer a safe place for them to stay. It was time for everybody trapped in there to get out and move on. The wind was so intense, it blew out some of the uh, walls in the back of the firehouse. So a couple of things happened. First of all, when everything went black the first time, I was fortunate because I had been in the firehouse long enough to have a mental map of the layout. So now this goes back to my training because a lot of times when we're doing a search in a, in a building or wherever, you can't see, so you use your hands and you say, okay, I'm going to put my hand on the wall, I'm going to follow across and get a general layout and work it that way, right? So here it is now, I'm in the firehouse, I'm there long enough to know, okay, here's a wall. If I go down a little further, oh wait, this is the little alcove, yep, here's the payphone that's in the firehouse. So keep going, and then there's going to be another wall, and yep, yep, okay, here we go, here we go. I get to the back, uh, you know, I'm trying to get to the back door of the firehouse. Couple of problems. One was, there were people, like I said, in the back of the firehouse, remember by the kitchen area. They're trying to get out the back door. I'm in the middle, and then behind me are people that were hanging out in the front of the firehouse that when I said, why don't you go in the back, you'll be out of the way. There were still people that said, no, they're going to hang out in the front and just kind of watch everything and see what's going on, right? So when the towers started falling, now they're behind me. So I'm literally getting crushed because the people in the back aren't going out the back door. And again, I'm doing this while I can't see and I can't breathe, right? But now I'm like, all right, I can't yell out to people to stop because I can't breathe. So I have to first start pushing people off of me from behind. And then I got to start reaching the people in front of me and pulling them to the side and, and pulling them behind me so I could get into the next person to do the same thing. Meanwhile, still keeping my hand by one of the walls to keep an idea of where I am, okay, till I get to the door. Now, why is the door not opening? And I'm feeling around, feeling around. All of a sudden, I realize, oh, wait, there are hinges. And people are like, well, what does that mean? 
Well, with the training, you know, oh, if there are hinges, the door opens towards you. It doesn't open away from you, right? Because the hinges are on the inside of the building. Right. So I had to pull the door towards me to get to the next. And then there's a next door that goes out into the alleyway behind the firehouse. So I'm like, okay, great. I finally got to that door. And I'm trying to push the door open. The problem was, I guess there was so much debris on the other side of the door. Now I'm throwing my shoulder into it several times, just trying to force the door open so we can get get the door open so people can get out. Then what happened was, and I, and I mentioned this to people, you know, if you ever see the movie Titanic, you know, when the submersible goes down at the beginning of the movie and it's all gray and it, and it gets closer to the, to the Titanic and you can start to barely make out an image of that railing at the front of the ship. And you get closer, you go, oh, this, this is the railing. Okay, fine. That is very similar to what I was experiencing because in the distance, it was all, you know, it was all gray. You know, some of the light is, is becoming available. So it's starting to lighten up, but everything's gray now. It's not black. And I start to see images, silhouettes of, of people. And... Then it's like, oh wait, those look like cops. Okay, so I call them now because we're, you know, starting to be able to get a little bit more air and everything. And I, I call over to them, hey guys, come here, come here, you know, help me get these people out of here. So some people were able to walk through the door. Some people were able to walk through the hole in the back of the firehouse. And then we started passing people through wherever we could for those who had trouble so this way they could be with those guys and and they could take them and help them get uh the help they needed you know the other thing that i remember though is when all this happened we have something called the collapse zone and a collapse zone is roughly say one and a half times the height of the building okay and then you do a radius from the base of the building out and make a circle so you say you know, if the building falls over and then the rubble bounces or whatever, you know, that's why you have to do one and a half times the height of the building, you know, roughly to say anything, this is the, the hot zone. You don't want to be anywhere near here when the building comes down. So I remember uh, when we first heard the rumbling and the people who were in the front of the firehouse, I, I called to them and said, uh, What's going on out there? They go, it's coming down. I said, what, the plane's coming down? They said, no, the building's coming down. The sound was, I can't even explain the sound. Uh, it was the loudest thing I ever heard. And, you know, it's, it's just this, and it's the strangest sound. It, I, I don't even know how to explain it because it's, you know, a thousand foot building, concrete, twisting metal. What else can I say? You know, the cars around us, you know, in the street were tossed around. So if you, you know, when we saw afterwards what the street was like, you know, the, literally there were cars that looked like 
kids were playing with their matchbox cars and they just flipped things over left and right. I mean, it was just like, how much wind was there to flip cars? You know what I mean? But that's how we ended up creating an opportunity to evacuate the firehouse the first time. So we were able to get a bunch of people out. But then, you know, shortly thereafter, all of a sudden you hear that sound you'll never forget again. And it's like, oh, my God. We just dodged the first one. And we did that with a clear set of lungs in halfway decent shape. Now we're still gasping. We're still gagging. How are we going to get through this a second time? And that was just when it's like, there's, it's not going to happen. So we literally, you know, I know in my head, I was just like, just keep working. And when you drop, you drop. It is what it is. Get as much done as you can before you're dead. And uh, that was that was my mindset. And then uh, the rumbling stopped. And, uh, you know, again, we got that second wave again of, of the dust and everything. It was another oh crap moment, a can't breathe moment, a can't see moment. How, how am I still here moment? Then it was back to, okay, who's still in the firehouse? Who do we have to get out? Let's make sure the house is empty. Uh, you know, the best that we can tell. You know, like I said, um, the front of the firehouse, you couldn't see anymore. Okay, at this point now. Uh, and it was interesting because I was talking to a friend of mine who was in uh, over at a 120 truck, 231 engine in Brooklyn. And it was my understanding that they got assigned to come to the firehouse where I was, 10 engine, 10 truck, we called 10 house. And their assignment was to dig us out. And uh, when they got there, they were like, first of all, it was like, how could anybody be alive in there? And then they found out that we were able to get out the back. It would have been, you know, nice to see a familiar face, but uh, the reality is I'm glad uh, we were able to get out of there before anybody else had to come come and, uh, and deal with us. Both towers down, the area is a war zone. You've got a large group of people. Now what? We're getting everybody out of the firehouse. Now, you have to remember, we still have... Uh, the man from China. The man from China is somebody that Rob has since become good friends with. He had a fractured hip, but that wasn't the only thing that made helping him challenging. Walking was not an option for him. Sitting in a chair was not an option for him. We pick him up and he's got this briefcase and uh, we said to him, listen, the briefcase is really heavy and we were trying to do like you ever, you, you've seen like the football carry where you got a guy under each shoulder right his arms are around like your neck and shoulder area right so in one of those hands is a briefcase and we're getting hit in the head with this thing <laughs> and we're like dang that hurts you know and with everything that's going on this is the last thing you want to be dealing with so we said can can you please leave the suitcase because this briefcase because it's it's heavy we're getting hit with it. It hurts, and it's slowing us down. He goes, I can't leave it. I can't leave it. We, we beg him some more, beg him some more. He's, he's saying, there's no way I can leave it. So we said to him, what is in the briefcase that's so important that you can't leave it behind? He goes, it's a million dollars in cash. So we're like, 
okay, the briefcase is coming with us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, million dollar you know, man, you're coming with me. So, you know, and, and you know, um, he is calling to me numerous times, Rob, Rob, don't leave me, don't leave me. And I'm telling him, I promise you, I'm not leaving you. Okay. But I just have to figure out what we can do. You know, let me come up with a plan so we can get us out of here. And I said, I'll be, I'll be back. I'm not leaving you. I promise you, I'm going to be back. You know, and I went into the back alleyway. And again, I remember before the collapse, there was uh, like a motorcycle and stuff like that. So again, I had some landmarks of where things were and what was going on. And uh, I was able to get together with the uh, the two EMTs and we had our plan. And then we actually got an assignment, which was crazy when you think about it, that we we're actually able to get some sort of communication from FDNY. And, and the assignment came in saying, all right, get to, uh, to Rector Street. And evacuate that building so we get to two rector street and so the plan was i'll stay in the lobby of the building and the emts would start doing a, a floor by floor evacuation saying everybody please this building was a few blocks away from you know what became ground zero right so there was a lot of dust there was that dust in the streets but the building was fine the air was clean and so i stayed in the lobby and they went to the floors and said, everybody, this building is being evacuated. You'll go down to the lobby. You'll see Rob and uh, you'll stay with him while we gather everybody. So they ended up clearing about three floors. We had about a hundred people or so. And we said to the people, uh, Rob will be at the front of the line. We're going to go single file down Broadway to Battery Park where we'll, there'll be buses waiting and we're going to get you guys out of Manhattan. Basically, Manhattan's closed, and uh, we're getting you guys out of here. So I remember one woman came up to me and said, um, well, listen, I have to be in Queens tomorrow, so where are you taking me? I said, listen, if you don't let me do my job today, you don't have to worry about tomorrow. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. And they were like, they're still trying to figure out what we're talking about because they see us covered in all the crap and everything. And they're coming down with their styrofoam cups of coffee. They're perfectly clean. I remember this one guy, I mean, he looks like he just got out of the shower. I mean, he, I mean, his shirt was crisp. I mean, it was just like these people were a few blocks away from hell and they have no idea what they just missed. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So when they came outside the building and saw the layer of dust down Broadway, they were like, wait, what? What do you mean the towers fell? I'm like, no, no, they're, they're not there anymore. Okay. And then they started to realize something serious happened, but they didn't quite know what yet. And, uh, so then everybody was like, okay, single file, just like, like we instructed and, uh, everybody fell in line. I noticed that there were a few pregnant women in the group. And I said to them, um, all right, you guys stay right next to me because I was concerned with the stress of the environment and everything. Who knows what could happen with them? You know what I mean? Yeah. So I said, you know, you guys feel okay. They're like, yeah, I go, please. If anything starts to change, I need to know immediately. Okay. And they're like, okay. Okay. You know, no problem. Now we're literally marching down Broadway 
single file and people are coming up to me saying, um, listen, I'm by myself. What do I do? And I said to them, listen, you can stay with me and I'll get you out of here or you'll be on your own. And I cannot guarantee what happens to you. Yeah. And they were like, okay, I'm coming with you. Yeah. So like I said, we, we started with about a hundred people. And by the time we got to battery park where, where the buses were lining up, we had over 125 people. Wow. Okay. That's some, so we were picking up people as we went and we were at 125 plus, but we were also minus three. And you're like, well, minus three. What happened was I, we got there. Like I said, we're single file. I'm in the front. We had all the people. And then the two EMTs and the man from China, our million dollar man was in the back. So, uh, I spoke with the police down there. I said, listen, I got 125 people. I can move for you right now. Give me, give me two buses. And they're like, you got it. Filled up the buses, got to the end of the line. I'm like, we're up. We're, where are my guys? Where's our million dollar man? You know, did they get separated? Did they not leave the building? So now after I got my parade boarded up and, and heading out of, out of the city, I went all the way back to Rector Street to find them. I couldn't find them. I'm looking all over now to see where I can find them. I, I run into the fire marshals for New York City. And I said to them, listen, uh, I had these other guys. I can't find them. I'm by myself. Can can I stay with you guys? And I told them, you know, I, we were over at Tent House. And they were like, really? Yeah, yeah definitely you stay with us because, you know, Tent House is done. So we ended up then going back down to Battery Park and we ended up setting up a command post down there. And where we were, it was a very wide open area. And uh, all of a sudden we hear this roar. I'm like, what is this? And it was these fighter jets coming in. Yeah. And like I said, we're in this totally exposed area. There was nothing to hide behind or whatever. And we're like, is this the next part of the uh, of, of the, the attack? Because what happened, I mean, just to backtrack, I mean, we we had the two, we had our situation going on in the city, right? With the, with the two towers. While this is all going on, the, the captain was, you know, in quarters and he had a radio on and he then heard about the Pentagon and, and, and everything. So he said, listen, we are being attacked. So, you know, definitely keep your eyes open. So, oh, and so now we're on alert, basically, right? So back here now at, at Battery Park, the fighter jets start coming in. And we're like, are you kidding me? We made it through all that and this is what's gonna happen now? So I remember putting my hands up to like block whatever the f jets are gonna start throwing at us. And the other guys did pretty much the same thing. And then we all kind of like, what the hell is that going to do? So we were just like, all right, just brace yourself for whatever's about to come. And at the last second, the lead plane turned and we could see the star on the side of the plane. And we we're like, wait, these are our guys. And they're now securing the airspace around Manhattan. These guys came in fast, but they also came in very low. And I'll never forget the lead pilot had a white helmet on. So when when you're looking at a 
when you're looking at a fighter jet and you and you could like see the pilot's head okay and say there's his helmet that's low okay but it was a, a relief i'll tell you because number one it meant nobody's gonna be shooting at us and number two you know we have we have you know the, the cavalry's coming you know <laughs> we have some help now that we didn't have before you know and then the helicopters and everybody started coming in there was so much that happened that day i mean again you know once i was with the fire marshals and we set up the command posts and stuff like that i mean we were walking the perimeter again just trying to get information and the things we saw even the things that didn't seem terrible were disturbing for example i remember seeing there was one particular suitcase that was on the ground and it, you could see the person's belongings in there yeah and you know i would travel for work a lot i packed suitcases hundreds of times literally and here's somebody that was maybe traveling for work maybe going to visit somebody maybe they're coming home from visiting somebody or coming home from a business trip and uh they didn't make it seeing bicycles chained up around the perimeter you know you had the guys you know from the delis or whatever dropping off breakfast sandwiches to whoever was working in the towers so somebody wanted breakfast so somebody made a delivery and they got killed making the delivery because somebody wanted an egg sandwich you know what i mean it's just like i said it's not a gruesome sight but you know what it represented because there wasn't anybody there later to take the bike home and i do have gaps in my memory so i can only imagine what my brain is trying to lock away for me not to remember you know and every once in a while something does leak out and it's like oh all right you know and it's nasty and you know i can understand why my brain was trying to protect me that way yeah After 9-11, Rob continued to help out at Ground Zero. This is a good place to pause because we were recording this during Hurricane Ida. And as we were knee-deep in our conversation, there was an explosion near Rob's house and his power went out. We'll continue the conversation in episode two on surviving 9-11 and the challenges he still faces 20 years later. Plus, what happened to the million dollar man? Rob's story didn't end on 9-11. There's so much more in part two, so tune in next time. Thanks for listening, and be sure to like, subscribe, and share with your friends. This project is a labor of love, and I've got some wonderful stories coming up from truly fascinating people. Feel free to follow the Facebook page and group to engage with other listeners. I'll be posting photos, show notes, and more. I'll drop some links in the notes for this podcast. If you're enjoying it so far, positive reviews are really appreciated. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. This has been Everyday Odysseys, a limited series produced by Frank Verderosa. If you have a story to share or know someone that does, please reach out by emailing everydayodysseys at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>